Tonight, the major breaks that cracked open one of the country's most notorious cold cases. How investigators finally tracked down the suspected Gilgo Beach serial killer living on Long Island. Where the investigation and fight for justice go from here as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. For over a decade, it was the Long Island cold case that couldn't be cracked. Nearly a dozen people killed, their bodies discovered around Gilgo Beach on the South Shore. A major break finally came this summer when a special task force arrested a 59 year old architect from Long Island and charged him with murdering several of the victims who worked as sex workers. Rex Ewerman has pleaded not guilty to the murders and is currently behind bars, a long-awaited outcome for the families of his alleged victims who have been waiting years to see some justice. Here's Newsday TV's Macy Eglund with more on the suspected killer police say was living a double life. It just shows you. It could be your next-door neighbor and you don't know. Rex Hewerman, the first and only suspect to be charged in the 13-year cold case. So who is he? He was a, a kind of a nerdy kind of guy, odd, but he didn't, not a troublemaker, and he was he was uh, soft-spoken, and we spoke regularly, and, and I, I really, I'm, I'm surprised at the violence. Etienne de Villiers lives next door to Hewerman's run-down home. The little red house he grew up in sticks out like a sore thumb. People there have told me it's just been this thing. People almost sort of avoid it. They, you know, they walk across the street just to stay away. Kids don't go trick-or-treating there. Newsday's Mark Harrington has been digging into the life and background of the Gilgo Beach suspect. The house may be a sort of a symbol for the paradox of his whole life because uh, he's a he's an architect. He has a you know at least from the people that we spoke to a, you know a, a reputation for being a person who's you know. Uh, adept at what he does. And then you go to his house and you see a, a home that's sort of a rundown. I mean, it really stands out on the street. Neighbors say Huberman, his wife and two kids are quiet people who keep to themselves. In a sit down interview with Newsday, de Villiers recalls a disturbing encounter with Huberman, saying he'd often peek over the fence at his wife. It started becoming a regular thing. She says, every time I'm out there and every time I'm out there with a bikini or like a bathing suit, she, he would come out and, 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 and I finally uh, had a talk with him. De Villiers tells Newsday Hewerman often spoke to him about his love for guns. More than 200 were seized from a vault inside the home. An arsenal of weapons stashed away by a man with no criminal history, not even a traffic violation, according to public records. But police say Hewerman had a dark side he kept hidden. His internet search history became a big part of the investigation. Court documents detailing disturbing websites depicting things like torture pornography. 
His wife, Asa Ellerup, has now filed for divorce. Police say his family was away when he would attack. And Newsday has learned police in New Jersey, South Carolina, and Nevada are investigating if he's linked to unsolved murders in those states. A painstaking search for more evidence and answers as Hewerman sits behind bars in Riverhead. When I was around him, I, that gut feeling, I knew something was up. I just didn't know what, but something was up. Reporting for Newsday TV, I'm Macy Eglund. And for much more on the Gilgo Beach case, we're joined now by criminologist Dr. Scott Vaughn, who accurately profiled the accused killer way back in 2011. He's also the author of Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murderers. Also being joined by Anthony DiStefano. He's a legal affairs and criminal justice reporter for Newsday who has been reporting on this case for a very long time, especially on police used DNA to help the case. And Terry Austin is a legal analyst and a host of Law and Crime, the nationally syndicated show covering the day's top legal stories. So welcome to all of you. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a lot to talk about. So, let, Scott, let me start with you first, if I can, for kind of a bigger picture uh, approach to all of this. Why is it? You've studied this. You've written extensively on this. Why is it that the public has such a fascination with serial killers? Well, thanks for having me. And it's a great question to start with because, um, you know, it is a curiosity. Why Why do the Ted Bundys and the BTKs and the John Wayne Gacy's take on almost this iconic pop culture status? You know, um, it's it, there's this ongoing fascination. And as you said, I've done a significant amount of research for my book, and I believe you can you can almost reduce it to one word, and it's empathy. I think there's a, a need for us as humans to empathize and understand all things, the good and the bad. And these individuals represent, you know, the, the reprehensible, the base, as, as dark as the human condition can get. And it's very terrifying. And I think that we have this um, compulsion almost to try to understand it, because if we can somehow comprehend why these people do these terrible things to complete strangers, then maybe somehow, maybe it's not so terrifying after all, if I can, if I can understand it. And then, of course, there's also the empathy with the victims. Um, and, um, and that's, and that's a powerful thing too. But I think so it really, it comes down to the empathy, the thing that we have and the thing which they do not have. And that is empathy. Tony, let me come to you as somebody who has been following this case for, for a very long time. Uh, we always we refer to it as a cold case. Cold cases become cold cases for a reason. Usually there's not enough to go on here. But as I mentioned in the introduction, there there were breaks, recent breaks in this case that led to the arrest. Give us a bit of a rundown, if you will, of what it is that happened recently that allowed police to essentially resurrect this case. Well, this seemed initially like the, the never ending case. Uh, would it ever be solved? We, you know, people had doubts. But what happened was in early 2022, the Suffolk Police Department and the Suffolk County District Attorney and other law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, got together to form a task force uh, with the express purpose of solving this case. Uh, and they put their resources together. They said, check your egos at the door and let's get this thing done. And immediately, almost immediately anyway, they, they got a break on a lead about a vehicle, a Chevy Avalanche, which through a special state database, they were able to zero in 
on a couple of possibilities. And what also happened was that we didn't really know this early on, that there was hair found under some of the victims and the hairs uh, were able to allow the police through DNA analysis to link uh, those particular pieces of evidence to the family of the suspect and ultimately to the suspect, Mr. Rex Hirman. And it was an interesting uh, confluence, if you will, of technology and DNA analysis which got this case broken. Let me, Terry, let me ask you something here. And we're going to come back to some of what Tony talked about and how it could play out. But I'm going to ask you to, to sort of play the role of our legal professor, if you would. So the, the attorney, present attorney for the defendant said, and we see this oftentimes, said, look, don't jump to conclusions here. This is just a circumstantial case. And we all know that if you watch in the media, you'll see people talking about, oh, this is only a circumstantial case, as if somehow you can't get a conviction with a circumstantial case. Um, Terry, what's the reality? The reality is circumstantial evidence is just as good as direct evidence. As a matter of fact, the judge will instruct the jury that it is just as good. And you have to use your common sense, obviously, and you have to determine the credibility of both a direct witness who has seen a crime and the circumstantial evidence. And as Tony mentioned, here we have DNA. They had five hairs on these victims that they analyzed. And DNA is really important. They traced it back and they ultimately got to the defendant here. And they have cell phone evidence. That I don't want to underestimate. Everybody has a cell phone. And that cell phone goes wherever we go. Rex Huerman had not only a cell phone, but he had these burner phones that he used in connection with each of these victims. So that task force, and they did check their egos at the door. They did an amazing job based on everything I've seen so far. That task force was able to track those records for those cell phones. And I think when a jury sees all of that, plus the Chevrolet, plus there was a belt and all of the other evidence, I think they're going to be able to come to a conclusion even though it's only circumstantial evidence that this is the individual who performed these horrible crimes. Yeah. And Terry, one other quick question to you here, following up on what you said. Um, and Tony talked about uh, some of the evidence that has been discovered recently. Is it fair for us to assume, we don't know, but is it fair for us to assume there might be, may well be, more incriminating evidence that the prosecution and the investigators have that they're not revealing to the public at this point. Well, absolutely. When you listen to the DA's press conference, he basically hesitated. He did not want to give all of his information. He mentioned that there were these internet searches, but I don't think we still have all of the evidence that they found with those internet searches. We know he was searching for sex workers. He was searching for torture. He was searching for porn. But I think he has even more information that he's not telling us about. And I also think he has other records like American Express records, bank records that they are following and put together before they tell everyone. He doesn't want to tip anyone off. He doesn't want perhaps other people who might have been involved to take evidence and destroy it. So he's being very careful right now as to what information they're going to reveal and what information they're going to keep close to the best. Right. Scott, I want to come back to you. And I mentioned in the introduction, as far back as 2011, you had put together um, an, an extraordinarily accurate 
prediction, if you will, a profile of who this killer could be. Give us a list of, of some of the, the major points, the major identification elements that you had, you had pointed to when you put this profile together. Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, I expected that he would be a white professional male, educated, living in the vicinity of the uh, burial ground that had been discovered, uh, probably a family man, um, articulate, persuasive, very patient, um, and um, uh, driven, motivated by not sex per se, even though these were sex workers and there were sexual acts involved, I really believe that his primary motivation is domination and control and destruction ultimately of these uh, women. And noticeably, you know, he's this giant of a man and he picked these petite, you know, women. Some of them were not even five feet tall and he just loomed over them. And I think that was part of this, uh, you know, this need to play God almost. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that not being about sex. It's one of the things that we learned about rape. Rape isn't about exactly. sex. It's about violence. It's about domination, all those things you talked about. Um, Tony, back to you, if if I can. Um, first of all, certainly what Scott said back then sounds an awful lot like the defendant here, yes? Well, it does. And what Scott said is something that resonated with other people, uh, other profilers, if you will, who've looked at this case. They uh, thought it would be somebody who lived in the vicinity, was familiar with the, uh, the, the areas where the bodies were found, uh, was professional, uh, educated, and uh, you know, had a familiarity with the, the environment, as it were. So, yeah, I mean, this uh, does sort of ring true, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tony, uh, how, I, as I mentioned before, you've been involved in this and reporting on this for a very long time. What have you learned about the reaction? And let's let's start with the investigators, because, you know, you all know from your work. I know I was a prosecutor. If, if you're working on especially a murder case like this, um, it, it takes over the lives sometimes of those investigators that are working on this. What are you learning and, and your colleagues learning about the reaction that the investigators had to this arrest? Well, from what I know in talking to the investigators, uh, they are very gratified because it really bears out the uh, rationale for using the task force approach where people cooperate and pool their resources and not be in individual sort of silos and, and not talking to each other. Uh, so there's that reaction. It's also, of course, a professional satisfaction in breaking a case that a lot of people, frankly, thought could not be solved. Uh, so that is that really does come as some sort of vindication. Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to when I was a prosecutor, which is 1975, 76. And essentially, people were, were very reluctant to get out there. Defense attorneys, prosecutors, obviously, there's some limits on what prosecutors can say, and even on defense attorneys. But that's changed nowadays. In, in our world of social media, it's not at all unusual and, and to see defense attorneys getting out there early on. You know, we always talk about the court of public opinion, and we know that jurors are going to come from that court of public opinion. So uh, what would you be doing? I'm going to ask you to take the role of the defense attorney here. Would do do you expect them to get out there somehow? do some storytelling to try to combat this narrative that's been established about, you know, about this guy and what 
the prosecution says he was doing to these women? It's interesting, Jack. I've had some public relations training and my initial knee jerk reaction is no, say nothing, do nothing. Make sure you keep all your information close to the best and save it for the trial. Don't try it in the public of court opinion. But this case is a tiny bit different. And here's why. It is so public. Everyone knows about it. And you want your client as a defense attorney to have a fair trial. And you might want to set the narrative at least a little bit to tell people, look, let's wait and see what the evidence is. We don't want to try this in the public. I certainly would not have my client talking to the public. No press conferences because clearly they may be saying things that they shouldn't be saying. And as an attorney, if you are the one who's holding these press conferences, at least you can control the narrative. Here's the other thing I'll say. It's going to be difficult to get a jury out there. I was going to ask you about that, about the idea of trying this in that area. What are your thoughts? Well, it's going to be extremely difficult to get a jury who doesn't know about it, which is kind of why you do want to set the narrative. If you can't make a motion for a change of venue and go somewhere where someone hasn't heard about it, and frankly, in all of the state of New York, I'm certain everyone has heard about it, but you want to get it out of Long Island. If you can't do that, then you do have to set your narrative and you do have to talk to the public a little bit to let them know you should not jump to conclusions. We're here in the United States of America. You're innocent until you're proven guilty. As a defense, you don't have to prove the case. That burden is on the prosecution. So you set a very general narrative and leave it at that. You may have to do that because ultimately you might not win that change of venue and you might have to get at least a pool of jurors who can start with an open mind. That's very important. Yeah. Scott, let me come back to you. I would anticipate um, that the defense at some point in time, if this goes to trial, let, let's underscore the fact that, and uh, one of you said this already, look, uh, we have a system of laws and rules here. He is, as with anybody else, is innocent unless and until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt by prosecution. That's the assumption, assumption of innocence here. But I would anticipate that at, if this goes to trial, at some point in time, one of the things his defense attorney would say is to these jurors, this makes no sense. Why would someone like him, an established professional, an architect with a family um, and with an established and acceptable life, why would someone like that do something like this? And I think the suggestion would be, well, that's inexplicable for that to happen. So let me ask you, and not about this, but generally speaking, that type of why question from your experience what sort of answers might you see the prosecutors throw out to that question? Well, uh, that's a, that is a very good question, and the the the, the simple answer is that the, the reason that I was able to develop the profile that I did, and others uh, who are predicting something similar, is that if you go back and you look at cases that where there was similar crime scene scene evidence, it almost involved always involved a sexual sadist who fit a similar type of profile. For example, the, he, there are great parallels here between the Long Island serial killer and another case I'm very familiar with, and that's Dennis Rader, who called himself Bind, Torture, Kill. Mm -hmm. He was also 
a family man, well regarded in the community, um, invisible in plain sight, president of his church association, Boy Scout leader, um, basically the, you know, the every man living next door who had this dual life. And that's what these individuals can do is they have an ability to be, become chameleons. They can almost flip a switch uh, because I suspect that he is a, both a, a psychopath and a narcissist. He has that ability to just flip a switch and, and turn into something completely different. He can, One moment he can be family man, professional uh, architect, and then the next moment flip a switch and he can become a sadistic killer. It's consistent with this type of pattern and this type of uh, a profile. Scott, you mentioned something about narcissism being woven into this, and we've seen with some of the serial killers in the past uh, that there there seems to be a joy in the limelight for them. Is that is that something that's characteristic, or may well be characteristic, serial killers in situations such as this? Yes, um, I suspect that he is uh, uh, enjoying his notoriety and what he may do, you know, it's and 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 Dennis Rader, BTK did this. He he made a calculated decision. And after he realized that the evidence was was pretty rock solid, uh, he actually um, pled guilty. And then what he did because of his narcissism and psychopathy is he used the public stage as a way to uh, gloat. And and when he appeared in, in court for his uh, sentencing, people said it was almost like he was in, accepting an Academy Award for his body of uh, lifetime of work. These, these individuals are driven by what gives them excitement, what is going to give him satisfaction. So his decisions now are going to be calculated and he's going to do what he believes is going to satisfy his his uh, tremendous ego and grandiosity. Tony, we've seen a, a lot recently focusing on the search of his home. And, and it, it's an interesting juxtaposition. And maybe Scott, I'll come back to you in a minute on this, but Tony, I want to ask you juxtaposition being, it, it's hard to imagine a more precise profession than architecture. And yet you look at his home and it's hard to envision a more haphazard sort of maybe ramshackle is the word. I, I don't know, but just it, it, the contrasts are, are stark. Um, talk a little bit, Tony, about the the search and and what, if anything, we've learned about what might have been uh, revealed as a consequence of that search. Right about the the house being sort of atypical for somebody in his precise exacting profession of an architect. The place was, uh, for want of a better expression, from what police say, was sort of like a, the old Collier house. That's named after the Collier brothers from years ago, who had a house filled with all sorts of stuff. Uh, and it, it seemed really atypical and really sort of going against the grain. They have tons of, well, I wouldn't say tons, but they have reams and reams of material and many, many items that they've taken out of there. Some of it may be useful. Some of it, you know, may not be. Uh, they came away with hundreds of guns. Uh, which is itself its own little story. Uh, and it, it really is kind of a, a strange setting. Uh, the neighbors complained that the house wasn't really kept on the outside very well. And that must have mirrored what was going on in the inside. Uh, and it, it really is going to be something that indicates something about his psychology and the family dynamic that he was living in, which uh, I'm not qualified to talk about, but 
it seems to me that there's more to that story. Uh, got, got about two minutes left here. So, um, Terry, let me come to you about this. So question becomes this. They're, they're charged with three of the murders. There's a suggestion that he's a primary suspect in the fourth. And there's also a suggestion that there may be others prosecution might try to tie him to. Again, underscoring, we said innocent until proven guilty. But I'm going to reinsert you into his defense attorney. It, would you anticipate that this is the kind of case that could somehow end up resolving itself through some sort of plea agreement? Well, it's interesting you should say that. I mean, I think from a public perspective, people want to see him tried and people want to see him convicted. And obviously, if the evidence points in that direction and we have the right individual for the crime and he could in New York get life without parole. I mean, there are minimums and maximums, but the maximum for the first degree, second degree murders are the fact that he could get life without parole. So, But not a death penalty here in New York. I think people right. should realize that. Right. That is correct. And so I think people and the prosecution would want to see this taken to the fullest extent of the law and not have it settled for something less than that. But on the other hand, if in fact he came back with a plea deal and said, look, second degree, I admit to all of that. I killed, you know, however many people right now, the number 11 is being talked about, the three who he has been charged with, the fourth woman who he may be charged with, and apparently five other women, a toddler and a man. If in fact they can connect all those bodies to the one person, he might take a plea deal. He might say something like, okay, I'm admitting to this and let the families have some sort of closure as far as that's concerned. If that were the case though, Jack, I would think that it would be a very high sentence. I can't imagine if in fact he took a deal, it wouldn't be something, you know, it, it couldn't be less than 40 years. He's an older person, 40 years would put him in jail until he died. We could see something like that, but my my guess at this moment, based on what I've seen, I think they're going to want to try this, and I think they're going to want to do the maximum they possibly can. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and interestingly, the absence of a death penalty here takes away a bit of a negotiating tool where, you know, you could say, prosecution say, well, take death penalty off the table if you reveal all the other bodies. We've seen that happen in the past. Well, there's obviously a great deal more for us to talk about as this continues. And and you've all been fabulous, Terry and, and Tony and Scott, helping us to understand this. You're all great teachers. So uh, hope is we can get together with you again and, and talk some more as this case continues. Thank you so much, all of you, for, for sharing your thoughts and insight with us. You all take care now. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.